0: Today's reading from Genesis 37 is action-packed and a bit longer than usual, but unlike Netflix, there's only words, so you need to create a movie in your head. The backdrop, it's a dusty, hot desert, a load of sheep with a flashy coat, the potential of a murder, what more do we need? The previous episode was when we heard about the dreams that Joseph told his family about, that they'd be bowing down to him and he was going to be the top dog. Soon after this, Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. When they had been gone for some time, Jacob said to Joseph, "'Your brothers are pasturing the sheep at Shechem. "'Get ready, and I will send you to them. "'I'm ready to go,' Joseph replied. "'Go and see how your brothers and the flocks are getting along,' Jacob said. "'Then come back and bring me a report.' So Jacob set him on his way, and Joseph travelled to Shechem from their home in the valley of Hebron. When he arrived there, a man from the area noticed him wandering around the countryside. What are you looking for? He asked. I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph replied. Do you know where they are pasturing their sheep? Yes, the man told him. They've moved on from here, but I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph followed his brothers to Dothan and he found them there. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognised him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of those cisterns. We can tell our father, a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard of their scheme... He came to Joseph's rescue. Let's not kill him, he said. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. Then they grabbed him. "'and threw him into the cistern. "'Now the cistern was empty. "'There was no water in it. "'Then, just as they were sitting down to eat, "'they looked up and saw a caravan of camels "'in the distance coming towards them. "'It was a group of Ishmaelite traders "'taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin "'from Gilead down to Egypt. "'Judas said to his brothers, "'What will we gain by killing our brother?' We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the system and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt. Sometime later, Reuben returned to get Joseph out of the cistern. When he discovered that Joseph was missing, he tore his clothes in grief. Then he went back to his brothers and lamented, The boy is gone. What will I do now? Then the brothers killed a young goat and dipped Joseph's robe in its blood. They sent the beautiful robe to their father with this message. Look at what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son? Their father recognised it immediately. Yes, he said, it is my son's robe. A wild animal must have eaten him. Joseph has clearly been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes and dressed himself in burlap. He mourned deeply for his son for a long time. His family all tried to comfort him, But he refused to be comforted. I will go to my grave mourning for my son, he would say, and then he would weep. Meanwhile, the Midianite traders arrived in Egypt, where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was the captain of the palace guard. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, many, many years ago, the possum had a long, bushy tail. He was so proud of it that he would comb it out every morning, and he couldn't stop bragging about it to all of the other animals about how great it was. The rabbit didn't have a tail because the bear had already pulled his tail out trying to catch him one day. And the rabbit was insanely jealous of the possum. A great council meeting of the animals was planned, where each animal would dance and sing and tell his or her story. It was the rabbit's job, because he was so fast, to deliver this news to everyone. And as the rabbit was passing by the possum's house, he stopped to ask if he would be at the dance that evening. And the possum said, Well, I will be if I have a special seat, for I have such a handsome tail. I ought to sit where everybody can see me. And the rabbit said, of course, of course, I will arrange a special place for you. And I might also, if you would allow, get someone to prepare your tail for the dance. It would be so splendid. And the possum said, oh, that's a wonderful idea. So the rabbit hurried away and he found the cricket. And everyone knew that the cricket was the barber because everyone could hear him sharpening his cutting knives and his combs every night at dark. And the rabbit told the cricket, you go to the possum's house and you do exactly as I say. The cricket arrived, promised old possum that he would have him perfectly prepared for the council meeting and the dance that evening. Possum was so pleased. He lay down and fell fast asleep while the cricket went to work, washing and combing. But then, taking his knives, he cut all the possum's hair right off to the roots, off of his tail, and left the tail just as naked as his newborn baby. Then he wrapped up the possum's tail, what was left of it, in a tobacco leaf with clear instructions. This will make you more beautiful than ever. Do not Remove this tobacco leaf until you are prepared to dance. Well, the possum shows up at the dance that night. It becomes his turn. He struts up onto the stage after sitting in his special seat. And when the time came for him to dance, there in the middle of the floor, grinning like, well, grinning like a possum. possum. That's all right. He said to everyone, look how beautiful I am. And he began to sashay to dance and he took the tobacco leaf and he pulled it off and everybody started to laugh. And at first he thought, they're really pleased with me. But then they're falling over hysterically, laughing, pointing at the possum. And he turns around and he sees that his tail is completely naked. And he falls over in a fright and plays dead. And that, my friends, is why the possum's tail is naked. And why a possum will fall over playing possum if you scare him at the edge of dark in your backyard. At least that's how the story was told to me. That is the classic explanation in the Cherokee tradition, the Cherokee Indian tradition of how the possum's tail is naked and why the possum plays possum. Of course, it was never told as the actual explanation for those things about this strange little only marsupial in North America. It was told as a cautionary tale, no pun intended, a cautionary tale that pride goes before a fall that when you are self-absorbed, you alienate the people around you. And then it was also a tale told to me as a child of what jealousy and envy can do. Maybe the possum would still have a beautiful pelt and a beautiful tail and be the prince of creatures if the rabbit had not been so intensely jealous of him. Shall we lay aside that old Cherokee story with an even older story the story found in Genesis 37. Joseph is the possum. He shows up in that coat of many colors, shining, shining in the sun. And his brothers, well, his brothers are the rabbits and the crickets. And they are going to have their way with this young man and strip his beauty away. They make a choice. They make a decision in a fit of jealousy, in a fit of envy, And not only does it affect Joseph's life, it affects their life, it affects their father's life, and it affects generations that will come. The entire trajectory of a nation gets set into motion because of an arrogant young man and his jealous brothers, all found in that lengthy reading, thank you, Anna, in Genesis chapter 37. The brothers in Genesis 37 go to graze their animals a great distance from home. And they're a great distance from home, and maybe their father begins to think that they're up to no good. And so Jacob says to that beloved son of his, Joseph, go report. Last time they were, I saw them, they were sent to Shechem. Go to Shechem when you get there. Report. find out what they are doing and come back to me. Joseph gets to Shechem. His brothers aren't there. He asks around for a few minutes and a man says, Oh, I heard them talking. They've gone over to Dothan. Bobby rains. Can anything good come out of Dothan? No. No. Uh, Dothan is the name of of an ancient town, but it is also the name of that town in Alabama, just north of us here on the coast. And there might be some good that can come out of Dothan, Alabama, but there wasn't much good that came out of Dothan there in Palestine. Joseph gets to Dothan and he finds his brothers there and he finds a trap. They see him coming, that jacket burning out their retinas, and they see their chance now that he is outside their father's protection, here comes that dreamer, they said, let's kill him. We can tell our father that a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. We read it casually. It should not be read that way. This is fratricide. This is the killing of your brother. But Reuben speaks up. Let's not kill him. Let's let's uh, let's just throw him in a pit in a cistern and leave him to die. We won't We won't kill him directly. We'll just abandon him so that he starves to death or dies of, of of dehydration. They all go for this. Though Reuben, if you heard Anna when she read, Reuben has no intention of harming Joseph at all. His plan is to rescue Joseph from his other brother's hands, throw him into this pit, and when the time is right, he will spring Joseph from that cistern and set him free like a bird and send him back to his father. Reuben is the oldest. And at least here, he is behaving as the one with the most maturity. Surely, he's jealous of his little brother, but he doesn't want to kill him. He's involved, doing his best. He can't stand up against the mob, apparently. He doesn't have that kind of courage, but he at least has the integrity to rescue his brother from certain death. I have never been thrown into a pit and I wonder how Joseph felt about it, but I do have uh, and my wife is probably downstairs chuckling at this right now because she loves the story. I do have a little bit of experience about what it's like to be betrayed by your family and held over a pit uh when I was a youngster, and all the way up into my teenage years my fa- my excuse me, my uncle had a chicken farm, and I don't mean like free range chickens out here in the yard industrial poultry farm three massive chicken houses the length of several football fields three of those filled with chickens going eventually to the uh chick-fil-a yeah (laughs) to uh to the commercial uh whether it be grocery stores and restaurants and things like that massive operation now My most formative summers were there on that farm with my uncle, my aunt, my grandmother, and all my cousins. I'm I'm one of 19 first cousins that my grandmother had. And so we had this chicken pit. Now, this is before the days of environmental controls. This this could not be done today. But back in the day, what you did is you dug a giant hole, deep hole, uh, with a bulldozer. And then you built an artificial top on top of it with wooden boards. And then you built a hatch through those wooden boards that you could cap. And the the, the chickens that were... Uh, Not lucky enough to live, although luck is not on their side anyway because they're all going to the slaughterhouse. The chickens that died in the chicken house before they were sent off to processing, they died. You gathered them up and you chunked them inside the hatch down into this morbid Dante-like inferno. Think about all the years, and this is really disgusting, but all the years of rotting away flesh down in that hole and it was inevitable in the Georgia heat and the Georgia rain and the Georgia winters and summers that those boards would begin to rot on top and there were places you didn't want to step because you might fall through and the hatch would eventually open up and be much wider than it had been originally you could glimpse down into there and be terrified by what you saw and my older cousins would dangle me over the chicken pit by my ankles and um I would always wonder, why do they hate me? Why, how could somebody in my, in my own family do this? And I really worried what would happen if they lost their grip in the hot Georgia summer sun. I might not be sitting here today. Joseph has a worse experience than that. He's not down there in the blood and the guts. But th- they want to kill this boy. And his brothers are not like my cousins who when it was all said and done, thumped me on the side of the head and said and laugh and giggle and say, Oh, we would just play and we'd never drop you. They do this intentionally. They're sitting there around the lunch table. They've abandoned their brother in a pit and sit down to eat lunch. And off in the distance they see a caravan of camels. And now Judah speaks. Judah, we will come back to him in this story, as we will Reuben. And Judah has this cooling moment where his revenge and his jealousy has subsided after he's betrayed his little brother. And he says, essentially, you know, he is our flesh and blood. Maybe we shouldn't kill him. Let's just sell him. We'll sell him to that caravan group, and they'll take him off to Egypt. And that's what they do. For just a few dollars, they, they fish their brother out of the pit. And they sell him his, as a slave. They sell him into slavery and send him off to Egypt, which in the Hebrew mind was the worst possible place you could go. It is across the border. It is a dangerous place, the place of foreign religions, foreign gods, and foreign peoples. Now, here's the question. Where is Reuben. how could he wander off at this crucial time when his brother is in jeopardy why wasn't he sitting there eating lunch with the rest of them how could he not see this rolling flea market come strutting and strolling into camp why was he not there he shows up later Joseph is gone And it's too late, and Reuben tears his clothes, and he says, now what am I going to do? He confesses then to his brothers that he had no intention of harming Joseph. He wanted to save Joseph. What are we going to tell our father now? That's how you get in trouble, isn't it? Just incrementally, bit by bit, piece by piece, and now they are in it. You talk about life in the pits. It's not just Joseph that's in the pit now. It's all of them. What do they do? They go back to their original plan. Joseph is gone. They take that coat of many colors. They dabble it with blood. And they go back to their father. And they say, is this Joseph's coat? Actually, they say, is this your son's coat? They can't say our brother. Is this your son's coat? And Jacob says, it is. And Jacob comes to the only conclusion that he could possibly come to that his beloved boy has been attacked by some animal been eaten alive, and Jacob has to live with the fact, false that it is, that he sent his beloved son to his own death with this little errand that he ran. And the brothers just slip off away after sharing this news, and Jacob has to live with that for the rest of his life. How could you do that to an old man? How could you do that to your own father? How could you inflict that kind of suffering onto someone? Well, they were eat up with envy, eat up with jealousy. Now they are rid of Joseph and in a way, intentionally or not, are punishing their father for the favoritism that he has shown for the 17 years that Joseph has been alive. And Joseph has to lay his head down on a pillow every night in grief because his son is gone how many josephs are there that lay their heads down on pillows every night and they cry sorrowful tears because of injustice those who have to grieve for years because of the decisions they made decisions that hurt someone else decisions that can never be reversed decisions that someone else made that hurts them Those who must live with the cruelty of others, those who must wonder every day, where is God in all of this pain and suffering when I am down in this pit? Where's God? It's a good place maybe for one of my little isms, and I repeat it, uh, about life and God. Life and God aren't the same things. And they should not be confused with each other. I'm going to repeat that. Life and God are not the same things. And they should not be confused with each other. God is good. Life can be. But sometimes life isn't. God is just. Life can be. But sometimes it isn't. God is light. Life can be, but sometimes it isn't. God is love. Life can be, but you know, sometimes it isn't. As I talked to you this morning, we've already sang the song, There's the Threat of Two, two (laughs) possible hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico this week, with a heading currently for the northern Gulf Coast. Nothing like this has happened since 1933, the last time that we had two well-developed, named, not named storms, but, but actual hurricanes tropic, or tropical storms in the Gulf at the same time, simultaneously, not, almost 100 years ago. Very few people alive today, remember such a thing. And even then, in 1933, they were a 1,000 miles apart, one way over at Texas, one way over at Tampa, and now they're on these similar tracks. And these two hurricanes could make landfall in almost the exact location 24, 30 hours apart. It's unprecedented because it's 2020. It's, it's just crazy. Now, if that happens, don't blame God Or the sins of New Orleans. Or some other scapegoat as preachers tend to do. I was going to say TV preachers, but since we're all in virtual mode now, we're all TV preachers. Tropical cyclones are a natural occurring phenomenon in the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico. We know this. So if you build a multi-million dollar home on a pile of beach sand... You will probably cry when it gets knocked over, but don't be surprised. Don't wonder why, and certainly don't hold God responsible. I'm not without compassion about this. I have a home, this home right here. I'm just saying that events occurring on this planet occur within our fixed system of life. There are storms, there are earthquakes, there are wildfires, all of these are naturally occurring on planet Earth, and sometimes we get in the way. There is cancer. There is sickness. That is the nature of the vulnerable, fragile human body. There are accidents. That is the nature of having so many people with so much risk, sharing sharing such a limited space with such natural fallibility. There are heart attacks, there are strokes. That is the nature of a stressed mind, a stressed body, in a stressed society. There are coronaviruses, thousands of them actually. That is the nature of the wild physical order. And yes, there is cruelty. And that is the nature of the human heart sometimes. If you see God as being in control of all of this, I'm choosing. I'm going to choose my words carefully here, in control of all of this, then God is intentionally ordering all of these things, even the tragedies. God is killing that person with cancer, but sparing that person who has cancer. God is causing the hurricane to land here, but not there. God is making this car crash happen, but not that one. God is smashing that farmhouse with a tornado, but not that one. God is allowing this person to live in country A and live a life of freedom, while God allows this person in country B to live under tyranny. If this is God's control, then God is capricious. God is playing games. God is cruel. God is immoral. God is the source of all injustice and evil. I don't believe in such a God because I don't believe in a God that is less less ethical than who God created. We wouldn't behave in such a way. We wouldn't do that because only a sociopath would be so sadistic and so capricious. God's control has to be something else. Control, by the way, is not a word used in the Bible to describe God's actions. As I've heard it said before, God might be in charge. That's always not necessarily control. And if you don't believe that, ask any parent who's in charge of your home. And they'll tell you, I'm in charge. Who is in control of your home? Well, it just depends. There has to be something different. God's plan, God's involvement in human life must be less about command and control and more about solidarity and incarnation and joining in our sufferings and in our weaknesses, working things out over the long haul instead of causing all of these events to take place according to some infallible, unchangeable blueprint in heaven. So it may help us to understand like this that it was not God who sold Joseph into Egypt. It was his brothers, but God went with Joseph into Egypt. It was not God who caused Jacob's heart to break when he was lied to by his sons, but it was God who wept with Jacob at the hearing of that news. And it was God who cried with Jacob every night thereafter. It is not God who causes our tragedies or our injustices, but it is God who goes with us every step of the way, providing strength and grace that we need. That's certainly the teaching of the New Testament. God is with us, Emmanuel, that is the name the angels gave to Jesus, not the name God is in control of us. Not God won't let anything bad happen to us. Not God will always protect us. But God is with us even to the very end of the age, Jesus would say. So every time you suffer, I believe that God suffers with you. I believe that every time you bow and fall to your knees in agony of some sort, And you cry out against heaven that Jesus of Nazareth is there with you. I believe that when you feel like you are on a cross of suffering, that if you will turn your head and look, that there's a Galilean rabbi named Jesus who is on the cross there beside you. I believe that God enters into our sufferings in a way that goes beyond control. Because really, we don't need control. We need God's presence and God's love. That is what God offers. Presence and love, not necessarily command and control. I have quoted William Sloan Coffin in the past. He was the longtime pastor of the Riverside Church in New York City before his death. He was preceded in death by his son, Alex, who was killed when his car crashed into Boston Harbor in 1983. Ten days after his death, Pastor Coffin returned to his pulpit and delivered a sermon that he entitled, Eulogy for Alex. I'd like to read just a few of his words as I close. My son, Alexander, my 24-year-old Alexander, who enjoyed beating his old man at every game and in every race, has beaten his father to the grave. When a person dies, there are many things that can be said, but there is at least one thing that should never be said. The night after Alex died, I was sitting all, sitting in the living room of my sister's house outside of Boston when the front door opened and in came a nice-looking middle-aged woman carrying about 18 quiches. I love that line. When she saw me, she shook her head, headed for the kitchen, and said sadly over her shoulder, I just don't understand the will of God. Instantly I was up and in hot pursuit, swarming all over her. I'll say you don't, lady, I said. For some reason, nothing so infuriates me as the incapacity of seemingly intelligent people to get it through their heads that God doesn't go around this world with his fingers on triggers, his fists around knives, his hands on steering steering wheels. God is dead set against all unnatural death. My own consolation lies in knowing that it was not the will of God that Alex die, that when the waves closed over the sinking car, God's heart was the first of all hearts to break. And now, my own broken heart is mending, largely thanks to so many of you, your love. For it is love that begets love. Love transmits strength and that's what hundreds of you have understood so beautifully you gave me what God gives to all of us minimum protection maximum support I swear to you I wouldn't be standing here were I not so upheld so I shall so let us all seek consolation in that love that never dies, and find peace in the dazzling grace that always is.